Good evening. My name is Sumi Madhuk, and I welcome you to the Gender Institute 2008-09 Public Lecture Series on Gendering the Social Sciences. Through the course of the academic year, the Gender Institute, with the support of Stickard, which is a Suntory and Toyota International Center for Economics and Related Disciplines, has invited international leaders in the field from a range of geographical and disciplinary arenas, speaking from a variety of perspectives that reflect and extend current interests at the Institute and promote the importance of a gendered approach to social science scholarship. Key themes across these lectures include the global reach of gender, the tensions between gender expertise and gender politics transnationally, and the links between gender studies and other arenas such as sexuality, economics, philosophy, human rights, and social movements. In addition to the public lecture series, the Gender Institute also runs a very vibrant research seminar series, which too is open to the public. And I'd like to take this opportunity today um, to announce that our next research seminar uh, will take place on the 17th of March in D502 Clement House, and it is titled Cultures of Rights. And it's a panel discussion with Kate Nash uh, from Goldsmiths College and myself. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it will take place at uh, 6 p.m. Before I introduce our speaker for this evening, I should also like to extend my warm welcome to Professor Amal Treacher, who teaches at the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Nottingham. Professor Treacher is a member of the editorial collective of the, Fem of the journal Feminist Review, and she will, at the end of, the public, of this evening's public lecture, introduce and present the most recent issue of the journal, which has as its title, South Asian Feminisms. This evening's public lecture will be recorded and will hopefully be available as a podcast um, on the Gender Institute website and on the web pages of the LSE events page. Um, I feel especially privileged um, to, and delighted to introduce uh, our speaker this evening, Professor Ratna Kapoor. Uh, Professor Kapoor is Professorial Fellow at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations and the Director of the Center for, the Fe for Feminist Legal Research in New Delhi. Professor Kapoor has held uh, more distinguished visiting professorships and fellowships that I can kind of uh, uh, recount here, but, but, but they include, her many, her many distinguished uh, uh, professorships and fellowships include ones at Harvard and at Cambridge Universities, and she's the author of numerous books and scholarly articles. Professor Kapoor's name is now synonymous with the founding of feminist legal studies in India uh, in the early 1990s with the publication of her book, Subversive Sites, which explicitly applied feminist analytical uh, frameworks in order to examine law and gender in India. More recently, Professor Kapoor's scholarship has looked at ways of bringing together feminist critical legal studies with post-colonial insights on questions of sexuality, legality, and gender. In addition to writing on law, gender, and culture in India, uh, Professor Kapoor has turned her attention to the questions of secularism, globalization, and marginality, to trafficked and terrorized bodies, to the fragile, difficult, precarious, and exclusive subject of rights. In fact, it is this precarious subject of rights that is the focus of her talk to, uh, today. Professor Kapoor has written extensively on human rights and has queried the dark underbelly of enlightenment project of human, that human rights are a salient part of. In her writings, she interrogates the foundational claim of human rights as a progressive, forward-looking, universal project and asks, what happens when the faith in human rights as a progressive, universal project is eroded and its dark sides exposed? And what might this exposure, this unmasking, mean for emancipatory and transformatory politics? For without a vision of politics, really, our scholarship surely would be bereft of responsibility and accountability. Professor Kapoor. 
Thanks, Amy, for that very kind, generous introduction. And uh, uh, um, I intended that to be played while you were all coming in. It's sort of the Indian version of Singing in the Rain. Um, the main reason I'm, I'm playing this uh, particular song and dance sequence from really one of my favorite recent Bollywood films about a Bombay sex worker named Chameli is because it's, it's like 6.45 and it's the end of a very long day. So no matter how hard I try to keep your attention, I will worry that I most certainly will not be the object of your desire by the end of this talk. So <laughs> I've left that task to Chameli. Um, Secondly, of course, a slumdog millionaire comes home with his bouquet of Oscars and box office earnings of 160 million U.S. dollars. I want to challenge that imagery and representation. I locate myself on the side of the subaltern subject and the post-colonial feminist project through the performance of Chameli, which challenges the idea of the victim subject, the impoverished victim subject, which so often characterizes scholarship and celluloid representations of the other, including feminist work and activism, especially when it comes to so-called uh, poor, poor women in the so-called third, third world. And finally, I do totally love this sequence. I can see it over and over again, and probably in the sort of slight twist of Spivak's words. Uh, the subaltern may not be able to speak, but she sure can dance. Um, <laughs> Feminism in South Asia is going through some very turbulent times, and I don't think it's only characteristic of South Asia. I think it's true globally in many parts of the world. There's a sense that feminism as a movement and a discipline is under siege, especially with the rise of all forms of critiques that appear to have gnawed away at that which constitutes its core, sex and gender. While different critiques such as third world feminism, queer theory, black feminism, post-colonial theory, appear to be searching for a space beyond sex and gender. Fem feminism, and women's studies in particular, is resisting such a move. And it seems it remains quite firmly tethered to sex and gender. In this talk, I examine the specific challenges to feminism and women's studies in my part of the world, and whether it continu continues to hold out any political possibilities. I'm going to address four aspects here. I set out the assumptions on which feminism in post-colonial India, which is primarily associated with uh, women's studies and women's rights activism, is based. I use these terms interchangeably um, as women's studies in India is closely linked to the women's movement. And when I use the term feminism, uh, I'm specifically referring to these two components. I'm hoping that my sharing here will also have some sort of resonance with some of the issues uh, that are uh, uh, coming up in the context of the, uh, of the United Kingdom and women's studies projects over here, or the women's movement. Secondly, I look at some of the challenges posed to the discipline from specific movements, such as the campaigns for the rights of sexual and religious minorities in my own context at the domestic level. And I unpack how these movements have exposed the exclusionary and at times non-revolutionary side of feminism and put into question both its relevance and revolutionary potential. Uh, in the third part, I want to set out how the diminishing relevance of uh, feminism coexists with a broader critique posed by post-colonial theory of the basic assumptions about the subject, history, and progress in which 
the Liberal Project is based and along which lines women's studies and the movement have largely continued to operate. And finally, I address what's left of feminism as a progressive movement once it's, it is exposed as perhaps devoid of a political vision or progressive political direction or vision. And I'll end with some remarks about the analytical tasks and metaphysical shifts required both here and there uh, to ensure that feminism remains an intellectually and politically productive project. So first, turning to the assumptions about women's studies in the context of post-colonial India. While women's study centers really have been part of a global phenomenon, they have acquired their own distinct histories and identities within the historical and political context in which they have been established. Within the context of post-colonial India, uh, women's study centers uh, closely tied with women's rights advocacy have not necessarily been a force for radical change, though they were, one could say, born out of the revolutionary zeal of the freedom movement. There was a sense at the time of the freedom movement that the country was taking charge of its own destiny, that it could break with its colonial past, and at the stroke of midnight on August 15, 1947, the vision of human freedom for millions who had been kept under colonial subjugation would indeed be realized. The stroke of midnight brought freedom from the colonial yoke, but because of the partition of the subcontinent into India and Pakistan, also produced perhaps one of the largest and most violent refugee movements in modern history. Yet this context of freedom and anti-colonialism constituted the central features of women's activism and subsequently also women's studies. The period immediately after independence was focused on the prior to and immediately after independence was focused on the upliftment of women understood as social reform uh, in the form of women's education and political participation. And this discourse drew heavily on the reconstructed identity of women as mothers of the nation, which was embedded in the idea of Indian womanhood. The discourse of women's upliftment was used by all Indian women's organizations to support demands for social and economic reforms to enable a greater public role for women. It was an argument that women's distinctive roles and values as self-sacrificing mothers and dutiful wives could make an important contribution to the uh, public sphere. The discourse of upliftment developed alongside, though, the discourse of equality over the course of the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century. Women's groups began to focus on the idea that they could produce a world in which gender and sex might become history and no longer be important markers of social difference. The discourse of equality rights and its emphasis on achieving equality for women within economic, political, and familial spheres resulted in the passage of laws that guaranteed sex equality and special provisions for women in areas of employment, education, and some aspects of family law. These efforts, however, met with mixed results. The discursive struggle to construct a legitimate political subjectivity for women in the public sphere was pretty much successful. Political representation and constitutional equality rights were achieved. The discourse of equality of women as the same as men and entitled to the same treatment sat in tension, though, with the construction of Indian womanhood and women as different that formed the core of the women's movement, which distinguished, of course, Indian women from Western women. The women's movement in India has thus remained tied at one and the same time to this revolutionary as well as this non-revolutionary uh, instinct or sensibility. 
It continues to invest in a conservative and essentialist notion of a distinct Indian culture and Indian womanhood, while at the same time pursuing a revolutionary enterprise, that is, of achieving equality between men and women and the end of gender and sex as markers of difference. In the 1980s, a new focus did emerge on sexual violence against women in both the public and the private spheres, especially focus on rape. And these campaigns tended to center women as victims, inviting responses that were highly protectionist and justified by the government and media who entered, uh, who entered the debate as necessary to protect women's honor, dignity, and chastity from violation. At the same time, this focus on the victim subject helped the women's movement retain its anti-Western nationalist credentials. Choice, especially in sexual matters, was muted, for sex per se was regarded as foreign, a contaminant from which Indian culture and the Indian nation needed to be protected. The legal campaigns on rape met with mixed results. They did not transform the legal meaning of rape or displace the problematic instruction of consent, nor the assumptions about women's sexuality. But they did make inroads in revealing the violence that women experienced and condemning that violence. Yet the women's movement could not ultimately control the discourse within which the violence was condemned. Shame and honor continued to inform the popular and legal discourse on rape. The violence against women campaigns and their focus on women's victimization have also formed the central plank of South Asian of the agenda of South Asian feminism in the international arena. And South Asian feminism is often used interchangeably or woven into uh, third world feminism, which is a platform that ostensibly represents the voices of women from the global south, uh, though this alliance obscures more than it reveals. Third world feminism has consciously steered away from discussing or engaging in issues of sexuality in the international legal context regarding the sexualized female subject as a specific obsession of first world feminists. The focus on the victim subject has helped to consolidate the identity of third world women as distinct from Western women and tended towards political conservatism, focusing on issues such as violence, prostitution, trafficking or pornography, which involve restraint or restrictions on rights to sex talk, mobility or sexual choice. By invoking victim rhetoric specifically, especially in South Asia, feminists have been trying quite understandably to negotiate the complex desire to validate their nationalist credentials in order to have salience and not be cast as Western and hence irrelevant. While third world feminism has indeed expanded the horizon of thinking as well as activism in relation to women's rights, it has at times been inward looking. It has not been a project engaged in, pro, in propounding a comprehensive vision of society, nor resulted in the expansion of a feminist political vision. So I want to turn now to my second point about the challenges to women's studies, especially in the domestic context. The revolutionary spirit of women's studies has not only been challenged by its own internal contradictions, but it has also faced some serious challenges posed by the politics of religious and sexual identity. At one National Women's Studies Conference in the early 1990s, feminist activists and scholars from the Muslim and Christian communities 
posed a challenge to the women's movement as being Hindu-dominated and protected by this identity, especially in times of civil strife and riots. Many feminists were nearly apoplectic over the challenge to their secular credentials by the sisterhood. Leftists, in particular, were acutely disturbed by this charge. Yet these charges were made in a period shortly after the mobs of the Hindu right tore down the 16th century mosque with their bare hands, claiming that it was, precisely, it was built precisely on the spot where their Hindu god Ram was born. In the next few years, the riots in Bombay, the victory of the Hindu right or nationalists in the national election in 1999, and the slaughter of over 1,000 Muslims during the riots in the western state of Gujarat in 2002 highlighted the validity of some of these concerns. The women's movement, with its focus on gender, victimization, and a universalized Indian women's identity, did not address these fractures and cleavages apart from appealing to the discourse of secularism. Yet a mere appeal to the discourse of secularism as per se an effective counter to such movements coupled with a refusal to engage with the politics of religion out of fear that their secularist credentials would be tarnished has proved to be seriously inadequate. Let me illustrate. After the Gujarat riots took place in 2001, reports indicated that the nature of the violence by Hindu mobs against Muslim women was particularly brutal and sadistic. While some feminists, both here and there, cast this violence within the framework of universal objectification of women, there were some uh, tribunals and investigation committees that were set up, um, and the use of women's bodies, uh, they attribute the use of women's bodies as things and instruments. I think such arguments really miss the broader ideological agenda and discursive elements of the right that have gone into constituting the subjectivities of both the majority and minority religious communities. The Hindu right has successfully appealed to the discourse of secularism based on equal treatment of all religions and equality as formal equal treatment or sameness in treatment to call on Muslims to assimilate into the national fold, the Hindu fold. Any resistance to this call is immediately cast as anti-national and anti-secular and posing a real threat to the identity and security of the Indian nation state. It is this discursive strategy that has come to constitute Muslims as unacceptable, as foreigners and oppressors of the majority community and Muslim men as lustful and a threat to Hindu women. And the violence inflicted during the riots is justified as an act of self-defense on the part, on behalf of uh, Hindu women and the Hindu nation. A position that universalizes women's experiences in the name of secularism, I think, obscures these layers and complexities and seeds uh, the right to define the role of religion in the public sphere completely to the, to the right wing. It also fails to address how the meaning of secularism itself has been increasingly defined by the right, something that's happened in this country as well as in, in the United States. Another set of challenges to women's studies in the movement have come from the controversies around questions of sex and the emergence of sexuality studies. In India, this contemporary challenge has been expressed in legal contests over the screening of films such as The Bandit Queen, convulsions over the holding of Miss World, Miss Universe beauty pageants, and of course the hip gyrations and pelvic thrusts of Bollywood cinema, 
song and dance sequences, a la Chimili, the celebration of Valentine's Days and protests over the emerging visibility of gays, lesbians, sex workers, and others. These contests all reflect a growing unease with the increasing publicity of sex and sexuality. Sexuality debates initially erupted over the screening of the film Fire, which many of you may be familiar with. It's a diasporic, uh, it was produced by a diasporic uh, Canadian filmmaker, Deepa Mehta, in 1998. And the story involves the attraction between two rather stunningly beautiful married women, Radha and Sita, who live together in the joint family household, married to two distinctly unappealing and resistible men. <laughs> Radha and Sita are both names derived from central female characters in Indian epics. In celluloid, they're imagined, uh, they're reimagined in the contemporary moment to transgress nearly every familial, sexual, um, and cultural norm that constitutes India as it is imagined, including trespassing into what's described as an unacceptable sexual space. The movie culminates in what one reviewer curiously describes as the Indian lesbian scene. The scene and the film triggered a national controversy over the cultural legitimacy of the film and its screening in India. Now, while civil rights groups, including many in the women's movement, regarded the banning of the film as a fundamental violation of free speech rights, the Hindu right read the film as an attempt to convert women to lesbianism which would lead to the demise of the Hindu family and Hindu culture. Gay and lesbian groups, in contrast, represented the issue as implicating the sexual rights of sexual minorities. And they argued that homosexuality has always been a part of Indian culture. They lobbied for the film to be a means for recognizing rights to sexual identity and a catalyst to repeal legislation that discriminated against such preferences. These groups emerged in opposition to women's rights advocates who were cast as anti-pleasure and unwilling to engage with the politics of sexuality for fear of relinquishing the victim subject through which their distinct Indian brand of feminism had been constituted. The organized movement of sex workers have posed similar challenges, especially to the nearly universal support by feminists for anti-trafficking laws and their specific focus on sex trafficking. These initiatives are invariably conflated with anti-sex work positions, deeply moralizing, and continue to constitute sex workers, per se, as victims. The discourse of sex workers has, count, has countered this repre representation at the material level, arguing that their labor is work, as well as at the normative level, challenging dominant sexual norms as marital, heterosexual, and procreative, as well as gender stereotypes that portray women as passive, submissive, obedient objects of violence rather than engaged in making sexual choices. These women are not only asserting their sexual agency and choices, but their complex subjectivities as mothers, entertainers, migrants, consumers, as well as sex educators. The women's movement was seen to be preoccupied with violence or the goals of equality. While the women's movement was preoccupied with violence or the goals of equality, others, in particular these um, sexual subalterns argued that the women's movement was paying no attention to sexual life or only attended to it through the discourse of violence. And while I think there is truth in this critique in the context of India, I would also argue that the proliferation of sexuality scholarship has also not been necessarily revolutionary. It's not yet evident 
that sexuality studies have taken on board the need to challenge gender subordination and sexism while foregrounding the erotic body and sexual pleasure, or that, at least in the legal arena, their approach is based on anything more than, appeal to, than an appeal to tolerance of sexual minorities rather than something more empowering, emancipatory. The women's movement has been hemorrhaging from its internal contradiction as well as these external challenges. Together with other progressive groups, the movement is experiencing a loss of velocity and a shared paralysis amongst those who believed in the revolutionary project, social transformation, and a world free of iniquities and social ills. And whatever movement does in fact exist seems to have no direction. The gloom afflicting the women's movement is not unique, I think, to my part of the world. And I have no doubt some of what I've said does resonate with feminists and feminism over here. This gloom is in part framed by the despair over the waning tools of modernity and a flagging faith in liberalism as a coherent progressive project for human emancipation. Postcolonial theory has argued, in fact, that this non-revolutionary spirit is, in fact, constitutive of the liberal project. And that's where I want to turn to my third point, post-colonial feminist inquiry. I want to broaden my analysis at this point to identify the source of this paralysis by using the post-colonial inquiry. What is it that seems to have died here and why? During the course of the 90s, of course, there's been gradual professionalization of feminism, increased funding available, uh, a new, you know, the movement has been transformed into an NGO community. Um, but I think these developments only partly explain the anxiety and uncertainty over the disintegration of the feminist agenda. These de developments are also shaped by a host of factors. In analyzing these, I want to uh, speak specifically of three factors. The first is the challenge to the idea that the downtrodden, including women, would be able to overthrow the forces of their subordination to take charge and become the masters of their own identity, of their own destiny, destiny. There's no doubt that this goal was indeed achieved at certain moments with, say, the expulsion of the colonial power through the assertion of civil and political rights by colonial subjects or the throwing off of the yoke of, say, slavery. Yet what has replaced these challenges does not necessarily represent a triumph of the people and the goals of liberalism. Instead, in countries throughout the world, we have witnessed the emergence of equally corrupt, illegitimate, exploitative powers. And in India, sex and gender have not necessarily been liberated in the course of the freedom movement, but remain embedded in cultural and gender stereotypes that constitute a part of the nation's identity. India stands today on the brink of becoming a new global economic power, but it's not because it's achieved the promise of revolution and freedom, nor does it stand out as a beacon, beacon for the oppressed. While it is a country that does challenge Western dominance, it is a market that seems to have liberated the entrepreneurial spirit of people and given rise to the neoliberal citizen, a subject who's primarily a consumer rather than a bearer of rights or a victorious revolutionary. Secondly, we have seen the demise of the idea of history as progress. 
Postcolonial theory unmasked the view of history as a long and steady march towards progress, moving from the primitive into a much more civilized period. It foregrounds what Salman Rushdie has described, the chutnification of history, exposing the messiness of the past and the more and many histories that are often obscured through a teleological understanding. The view of history as progress is unveiled as emanating from the heart of Europe, ultimately serving the ambitions of the colonial enterprise and justifying intervention into societies deemed primitive and backward. So the idea that we as a world have moved from some primitive past into a new modern era is further eviscerated in the contemporary moment by the emergence, of course, of reactionary right-wing movements throughout the world, whether it's you know the BNP over here or Blockner's Party in Switzerland or uh, the Christian Evangelicals in the U.S. and, of course, the Hindu right in India. All these movements feed on the emerging global panics over the survival of national sovereignty, conservative sexual morality, and cultural cohesion. History is not a timeline of events. It is a porous surface through which we, have, we view forgotten memories of the past and redeem them into the present. In the process, new narratives and renderings are produced, which are free, hopefully, from the captivity of seamless Eurocentric progressive timelines. Thirdly, the, the, uh, the, the idea of, this, of the liberal subject. Postcolonial theory has exposed how certain subjects have always been excluded from liberalism, which justified the subjugation of others. Indeed, when Europe was in the midst of its struggle for liberty, equality, and freedom, there was an assumption that these ideas, and there was this assumption that these ideas were universal. These values seem to stumble and falter at the moment of their encounter with the unfamiliar, with women, with blacks, with uh, the colonial subjects. And I think these values meet with some of the same difficulties today in their encounters with difference and unfamiliarity. For example, in the context of Muslims, or homosexuals, sex workers, or migrants, there's always another other who will come along. Universality is always accompanied by what Denise de Silva has described as the other side of universality. Now, in this last section of my talk, if this is the condition that we are in, then how can my critique offer hope in what is often described as dark times? Where does it leave women's studies and its focus on sex and gender, let alone progressive politics, right? Is this scholarship and activism simply reduced to the status of permanent hecklers to power, not able to imagine any kind of transformative future? I think a post-colonial analysis moves beyond the terrain that is traditionally defined as women's studies, moving beyond discussions primarily of sex and gender. But having moved beyond, has it then diluted, if not altogether, demolished the epicenter of women's studies? rendering it as obsolete or irrelevant. Are women's studies, which was yesterday's revolutionary, today's new dinosaur, in light of these new incursions, into the concepts that have traditionally defined its terrain? What is left of women's studies and the movement is perhaps not the right question. I think that the more important question is what does post-colonial feminism offer to women's studies and feminism more generally? when it is moved beyond this focus on just sex and gender. We would presumably want to move into a world that is beyond sex and gender, 
Yet there is a reluctance to move away from the objects of our trade, to continue to appeal to it and invest in it, and encourages its expansion, as so much political hope has been invested in it. Knowing what we know has not led us necessarily to revisit this project, but to continue to pursue it with what Wendy Brown has described as a yes-I-know-but attitude. The critique is suspended out of a concern that it will create anxiety and even nihilism. There is a sense that critical thinking will undermine the possibility of holding back the dark clouds of despair, even when there is clear knowledge that our current tools are blunted and offer really very little resistance to this brooding storm. Others have gone to the other extreme of declaring knowledge as dead and that we are now simply in the process of counting the corpses of our failed revolution. But I'm not going to buy into the rhetoric of what I see as largely this white male scholarship, which includes some critical legal thinkers, who are today's prophets of doom and gloom. Chimele does not allow me such an indulgence. Such a prognosis can only emanate, I feel, from those who believe that liberalism is the only form of thought that contains within it all political possibilities. Instead, what I want to discuss is how I think post-colonial feminism may offer uh, a critical yet productive way out of our anxiety. Its critique of progressive movements, including feminism, and the basic assumptions uh, on which the liberal project stands shouldn't be equated with pessimism. When we're questioning the women's movement and women's studies, it isn't to side with, it shouldn't be read as siding with patriarchy, with pimps, with evil. It is to remove these rose-colored glasses um, and lenses through which we have viewed the project and to force ourselves to ask some very serious questions, I think. What happens when the faith in feminism stands eroded, when its revolutionary zeal is diminished? Where does that leave us? Such questions are not what make progressive movements fail, but actually provide the kindling for new imaginative possibilities and vitality. It's better to confront these very difficult questions rather than to cling to tattered frameworks or keep reusing the same old broken tools. We need to free our imaginations and know what is it that we need to look for now. Post-colonial feminism I think, proposes at least four important exercises, which I'd like to elaborate on. Firstly, to turn the gaze back on ourselves and ask how have we been implicated at times in rather conservative pursuits of gender? How has our work reinforced difference, culture and gender stereotypes, and produced or encouraged at times antiquated uh, responses from feminist human rights groups as well as governments, whether through, say, feminist interventions in trafficking or in so-called flamboyant human rights endeavors such as in Afghanistan or even in the campaign on rape as a war crime. An honest and urgent self-critique is warranted here, I think, rather than a self-laceration driven by guilt or despair or a resignation to liberal reformism. Post-colonial feminism divests feminism of this, this so-called you know, blessed status as a, as a force for good and as progressive. It unmasks how the women's movement... Oh, OK. 
Okay. I'll speak slower. It unmasks how the, uh, how the women's movement can really operate alongside hegemonic social and political powers. This does not, however, negate the worth of women's rights activism or scholarship of, of the scholarship of women's studies. What it does, it simply, it simply forces us to have this honest conversation with ourselves as well as those who are allies in the field uh, about what I've often described as the dark side of the project. Secondly, we need to understand the situatedness of feminism, that it operates in and through cultural and historical discourses that regulate fashion and construct gender. Gender is a site of power, and it can be used by all sides of the debate to advance specific agendas, historically to advance civilizational agendas, and in the contemporary moment to legitimate a new kind of imperial state action, again, such as, say, the bombing of Afghanistan, partly in the name of women's rights. Domestically, it's been used to resuscitate authentic versions of culture, to entrench the public and private divide where women are regarded as the cultural preservers in the home, or even to promote protectionism, protectionist and sexually sanitizing responses to violence against women. It's this power in the hands of those who use gender that must be understood, rather than the ability or lack of ability to transform form women's lives through gender. Women's studies needs to come to terms with how gender is deeply implicated in power and hence how seizing the conditions that make gender as, uh, as well as to escape gender is in fact quite impossible. Thirdly, there needs to be this reorientation, I think, of women's studies, scholarship, and advocacy globally, here and there. Um, I think um, the scholarship has failed to adequately at times center and interrogate the colonial trappings and hegemonic underpinnings of, the, uh, of their scholarship and activism. In my view, it's not only useful but critical for scholars and advocates to consciously draw on the experience of the post-colonial world, in particular post-colonial feminism. Over here, I think, this doesn't simply mean including third world feminist voices in the curriculum. But to seriously consider how post-colonial feminism upends the discipline while still enabling a more productive conversation within the discipline. What is then required is a much more mindful engagement with scholarship that emanates from within a post-colonial context to draw on that which is subversive, critical, and analytical, rather than merely descriptive and compatible, let's say, with the first world assumptions about third world women. Um, the turn, I think, to post-colonial feminism prompts a fourth and related exercise. And that is to seriously, and this is sort of the philosophical shift I'm, I'm going to be propo I'm proposing here, is to seriously look for and learn from other traditions for a new political vision. Let me be uh, clear here. My proposal is not to do like this holier-than-thou Bollywood jig uh, and to eulogize the values of non-Western feminists over Western feminists. Located as I am partly in India, what's evident to me is that Indian feminists, with their focus, say, on dowry victims, on 
sexual harassment on trafficking in the criminal law have seriously hampered women's rights to free speech migration sexual and bodily integrity and the advocacy by of course the right wing in favor of all of these issues has fully exposed how women's rights advocacy can indeed be counter-revolutionary post-colonial feminism is also not merely another deconstructive move in my working with this project I do want to thicken its relevance and meaning by grounding it in the philosophical and intellectual traditions of the subcontinent. Such grounding provides post-colonial feminism with with a metaphysical and ontological orientation that does not simply concede space to mere liberal reform. Unfortunately, however, philosophical traditions other than from the West have invariably been regarded as exotic, esoteric, or rooted in religion, both over here and over there. And I think this view fails to recognize, at times, the deeply religious tones of intellectuals in Western traditions. For example, the focus on the work of many Western liberal feminist scholars does not consider the ways in which liberalism has not only been shaped by social, economic, and historical forces, but also including the role of the the Christian church. The religious dimension of the argument is constantly muted. For the liberal project, of course, views itself as acultural or anti-cultural, and culture is invariably associated with religion as something negative and displaced onto the third world. Such a position also fails, I think, to appreciate the very significant distinction that's made between philosophy and religion in these non-Western traditions. I I sort of club this in the category of non-Western traditions. It's It's a huge amount of scholarship I'm talking about here. Some of these traditions are immersed in systems of logic, of inference, dialectics, that can be traced to, of course, say, well before the Buddha, who, as all of you know, uh, was an agnostic, to Omerto Sen, a Nobel laureate in economics. Sen traces this tradition of dialectics, debate, and even skepticism in his book, The Argumentative Indian, which he concludes illustrates two truths, that, one, everything is open to question, and two, that Indians are a loquacious people. We don't shut up. Thus, not only do these traditions expose the ways in which the liberal project is saturated in culture, but also how culture is not necessarily a negative attribute. And it can be deeply philosophical and liberating. Now, while these traditions are in no way homogenous, I do want to set out in this last portion of my talk three distinct aspects that I think they do possess which may help to provide new political possibilities. Firstly, the critique of metaphysics and epistemology, the very basis from which knowledge proceeds, is an integral and not a renegade feature of some of these traditions. Challenges to the epistemological issues uh, in the West have often been castigated as the ravings of postmodernists and post-enlightenment intellectuals. Let me be clear, though, this level of inquiry and critique existed well before the postmodernists actually came onto the stage. Secondly, post-colonial feminism does not think of history nor time in these unilinear ways. 
Progress, and these traditions don't think of time in these unilinear ways. Progress doesn't mean simply this march forward, but an exercise of going deeper here and now. Such an exercise entails this constant reflection, critique, and debating the metaphysical grounds on which our arguments are based without this fear of nihilism resulting from our engagements. It's a pursuit of knowledge that locates the revolution within the subject, where transformation of the world lies within the transformation of the self. And related to this proposal is a third distinction, the conception of the subject and women's agency outside of the limited framework of the liberal political, uh, liberal progressive imaginary. Other philosophical traditions allow for the possibility of understanding subjectivity and agency in less sanitized and I think more grounded ways than may be permissible in the liberal universe. Feminists have conceived of the subject at times as either living under false consciousness and in need of rescue by the liberal savior or have highlighted the performative and subversive aspects of the subject even though she continues to be constituted in relation to hegemonic discourse. However, as the work of, of scholars such as Sabah Mahmood and others point out, these responses are unable to capture the agency that is exercised outside the liberal progressive imaginary. There are philosophical traditions where the subject is not individuated. Instead, what is important is the relationship, say, between her actions, identity, and performance with her interior disposition, her internal development. Let me dwell on this a little bit and elaborate on it, say, through the use of three examples. For example, when a Muslim woman wears the veil, one feminist responds, addresses her exclusively as a victim of false consciousness and subordinated to masculine norms. It is nothing more than, uh, the veil is nothing more than a body bag. Or her choice to wear the veil is read as an act of resistance to liberal norms and values, to assimilation. Both of these ways of reading the subject miss out on her choice, uh, miss out on how her choice is linked integrally to her inner emancipation and her way of being in the world that is simply not captured within the bounds of the liberal imaginary. It is a choice that needs to be understood in terms of the relationship between the external acts and performance of the subject, that is, the wearing of the veil, and with her inward disposition. A second example is captured by the story of Umrao Jan, a 19th century Bombay courtesan who was a sex worker, but who also wrote deeply philosophical poetry. In the contemporary feminist liberal discourse, she would be regarded as exclusively subordinated by male privilege, a truncated, thoroughly victimized subject, or critical theorists would read her as a subversive sexual subject who challenges hegemonic sexual, cultural, and familial norms. Yet while Umrao Jan is a courtesan, she is also much more than that. She is indeed a very sensitive poet. She may earn her money through her work in the Kota or brothel and feed herself through her work, but that's not what defines her. What defines her is her poetry. She's a seeker. She seeks an internal peace and an internal grounding through her poetry, which is both philosophical and reflective. Her performance as a sex worker is only that, a performance. 
But it is her poetry which provides her with a reflective space that connects her with her inner disposition. It's a space that's not driven by her profession, but by this inner philosophical being. And another slightly different third example includes the hijras or eunuchs of South India. Every year on the full moon in May, they congregate in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu uh, before a deity, Iravan. Iravan is the son of a warrior prince, and they perform the, the ritual of marriage. They claim their status as the brides of Iravan. While holding beauty pageants, seminars on their social and legal status and discussion on health matches for two or three days before the full moon event, it's the marriage that is the act of supreme power and significance. The event is deeply ritualistic and, and a very fervent moment where a bit like maybe the dervishes, they work themselves up into a frenzied and altered state of consciousness. It's a space which is freed from all those references that govern their uh, most aspects of their ordinary lives. The hijra's or eunuch subjectivity and agency is not just defined by her sexuality, but also by this more ritualistic, frenzied relationship. Now, all of these three uh, instances articulate spaces of subjectivity and agency that I don't think can be captured purely within the liberal framework. Um, they are embedded in a metaphysical space that enables such complexity and, and the articulation of the self, though not exclusively as a victimized subject, nor simply in terms of her performance, say, as a, as a sex worker or a eunuch or as a veiled woman. Agency is located in the relationship between these identities and the performances to her inner disposition. Her, subject, her subjectivity is not just as an abject and excluded subject, but in fact is potentially liberating. It's a move away from all that is known into a state of quiet stillness, where there is complete acceptance, where you are neither a victim, agent, nor subversive, but freed, liberated, but not in the way, let's say, that the liberal imaginary conceives of liberation or freedom. I think these are philosophical spaces constituted by much more than one's performance or identity. Identity, they're constituted by what the subject is, and it's this isness uh, which is derived from a very complicated space that I think we need to perhaps unpack more and perhaps explore for our sort of uh, when we're revisiting uh, our, our, our politics. While all these ingredients, I do think, need to be further elaborated, they do provide the basis of newly imagining a political ground between despair and paralysis on the one hand and a surrender to liberal reform on the other. And I want to end by really restating that my critique uh, of women's studies and the women's movement is intended to be productive and articulate a different cosmology within which to understand the place of this, this scholarship and activism and feminism in our contemporary world. To remain invested in the objects of women's studies that sex engenders is to move away from the possibility of revolution. Yet, as I've indicated, we cannot simply emancipate women's studies and the movement from its objects, as these objects are so deeply embedded within these sites. So perhaps we cannot even think in terms of revolution. We can think in terms of transformation, through a deeper and different engagement with knowledge, its metaphysical location, and its goal, which is not reduced simply to a movement forward. 
And I think the centering of these excluded subjects, histories, zones of, uh, uh, excluded zones of power and philosophy can bring the project of women's studies and women's rights activism back to a space of greater optimism and less despair. And it may also free us from the revolutionary paradigm without resigning to, forcing us to be resigned to the liberal reformist project. Ultimately, it is an effort to put some life into a project of des- in desperate need of resuscitation to help stage the sorely needed intellectual insurrection in the area of feminism and to open up the possibility to live and think differently. Thank you. Thank you, um, Professor Kapoor, for such a uh, thought-provoking and a fantastically illuminating talk. Um, Professor Kapoor will now take questions uh, from the floor. Um, There is a roving microphone, so uh, could you please wait for the microphone to come to you before you ask the question? And also it would be very nice if you could also state your name and um, uh, anything else that you might want to state (laughs) in relation to your name. Yes. Thank you. Kate Nash, Goldsmiths College. Um, I'm very kind of. There's many, many questions that I'd like to ask you, but I'll ask you one question, which is. One of the things that you seem to be suggesting, and this may be because I've got in my mind also a paper that I've heard recently by um, uh, a, part of a member of the women's movement from Palestine, and so it may be that, that I'm getting that resonance as well. And there is the way that, that, that what I'm kind of hearing is that you're partly talking about then drawing on kind of popular, uh, you know, um, sort of resources which are more... Um, in the grassroots, which are less kind of tied to to the elites, to international, to the law, and so on, and more kind of grassroots, but not even grassroots activism, even kind of, yeah, the way that you're talking about drawing on particular traditions, and maybe we could say vernaculars. <laughs> but, um, and one of the things that strikes me about this is that, you know, I think this is very interesting and kind of um, way to go about things, but is there a kind of... There's a kind of bit of a difficulty in a way, which is that if feminism is popular, can it also be transformative and kind of cut into relations? So you don't really get to Judith Butler, I think, through these... It's very, very hard to contest things around sexuality and marriage and so on and have a popular movement, I think. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but so I wonder if they, they sort of pull in rather different directions then because, yeah, they may be transformative in some ways, but not necessarily in ways that we have theoretical resources already that we know about to anticipate where, they'd like, where we would like them to go, if you like. So I wonder if there is a kind of, if you could just talk a little bit about whether that's a tension or whether there's, whether there's something that I'm not being there in that. Do we take a couple? Um, would, would, you, would you, I mean, it's up to you. Would you like to respond to that? Would you like to collect a couple more? Maybe can we collect a couple of questions and then I'll respond. Okay, you. right. Beth. 
uh, Srila Roy from the University of Nottingham. Um, I was just thinking, I mean, you talked obviously about the victim subject that has dominated the nationalism and feminism. But arguably, interfeminism is also, and I guess that's implicated in, in, in uh, Jenna's his struggle with not being the agent or subject or imagining being the agency. And I just wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that, because it's not that there hasn't been uh, any agent or subjects within Indian feminism, but I always think of it as, I mean, the only way where is through in the tradition of the left and often linked to um, a kind of revolutionary violence of quite a problematic kind. Mm. So, um, and, and would, would we say that that way of imagining agency is also linked actually to the liberal subject and to the liberal promise of transformation? Mm. Or is it much more linked to a, a, a leftist imaginary, which I don't know, kind of dovetails with all of this, but... One more, maybe. So would you okay. yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure I was um, t speaking about uh, popular resources. I, I'm not quite sure that that's really where I was going with this because I, I'm, I'm actually talking about rethinking it at several different levels. Certainly, rethinking how we think about law. Um, uh, not to disengage with law, but to continue to engage with very differently, not as a site of freedom and emancipation necessarily, but as a site of power. And uh, as construction constituting um, the, the, the subject, um, both through engagement as well as through the texts that emerge from law, whether it's judicial decisions or subsequently law reform. And secondly, when I talk about the philosophical traditions, again, I'm really not talking about something that's a, a popular uh, resource. Um, I think these are very uh, deeply philosophical texts that are engaged with metaphysics, and that's not immediately necessarily uh, or readily available. Uh, but I think we need to sort of try and tap into that resource a little more because there's such a fear of um, if we lose the grounding of liberalism by questioning and interrogating it so profoundly. Where do we go from there? And I think that there's this absence of fear in the context of some of these traditions as a subcontinent because there's such a long history of engagement and you know displacement of these different metaphysical positions. It's, it's constant. It's a dialectics that's very much a part of some of these traditions. Um, and I think there are two aspects to what I'm trying to actually propose. One is, of course, you have to continue to struggle in the world with the tools that you have at hand. But what I'm also suggesting is the possibility of reflecting on how you want to be in the world, different ways of being in the world, not just as a rights-bearing subject or as a consumer citizen. I mean, those might be the two alternatives today. Um, but it seems to me we have to go much deeper than where we're at at the moment. And so, um, I'm, I, you know, I wouldn't really say that it's just, it's at the a sort of a populist kind of level. I wouldn't really be proposing something like that. In the context of agency, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, I guess when I'm talking, when I refer to agency, I really do think about it in terms of how the liberal subject is constituted. And uh, the one who has, the rights-bearing subject is the one who has agency. That's how 
the sort of narrative goes. But I really liked your reference to the fact, yes, but there is no question that women's agency is articulated in different ways, whether it's in the form of revolution. I think of the Maoist female combatants in Nepal or the Naxalites as well, as ways of resisting. But often those women are, again, within this construct of how women should be, within sort of dominant sexual and familial norms, constructed as deviant or aberrational. That agency is not seen as something that we might need to try and go behind and see where is this coming from. And I think that's sort of quite problematic. I also think there's a real need for, I mean, I think leftists are so resistant to want this kind of proposal that I would be making, immediately thinking, oh, this is some kind of, you know, Ratna's got religion or something like that. And I think that would be deeply troublesome. It's very difficult to suggest something like this. But I think we need to push this conversation. And I think that reluctance I sort of spoke of when I was talking about the Women's Studies Conference and the challenges posed by the Christian and Muslim women. So I think the left really needs to go beyond the limitations of its own framework, because we know that their own project needs a revisiting, a serious revisiting, especially in the context of countries like India where, you know, neoliberalism and the global market has really taken hold in such a profound way. But I do like this question of, you know, maybe going, looking at those resistive subjects. And I think about resistive subjects not only in terms of, say, those who take up the gun and fight the revolution, but also in terms of, say, people like Chameli, representations like Chameli, who challenged the dominant sexual and gender norms, you know, by virtue of their performance. And I think that's another place of locating agency. It's one of the reasons I chose some of these subaltern subjects, these stories of, say, people like Umrah Dhan or the Hijras or the Veiled Woman, you know, and trying to locate their agency and, you know, probably trying to link it to some other kind of philosophical thought and tradition or location, not only purely within liberalism and legal discourse. Thanks, Anne Phillips. Thanks very much for that really interesting lecture. I wanted to ask you about the fear that you talk about, you know, that if the critique goes too far, the fear that you'll be left with no, one will be left with no political tools. And I just wonder if, in a way, I mean, to some extent, maybe we contribute to that fear by labeling, in a sense, this very expansive notion of liberalism, which is kind of like, you know, sort of almost like everything that we might criticize comes under this kind of label of liberalism, which has become, I mean, I've rather lost my sense of what liberalism is. I think I knew what liberalism was when I saw it in opposition to Marxism or to socialism. I had a period in which I thought I knew what liberalism was when I associated it with a particular kind of focus on the individual rather than the collective. But actually, the more we talk about agency, the more sort of that also kind of shifts its focus. So I suppose my question is, in a way, I'm not convinced that it's so useful to define what it is we're criticizing or what it is different people are criticizing, different things, obviously, but as liberalism or tradition of liberalism. And maybe in some way that contributes to the fear 
of the loss because you know it's like there's this whole body of things that mm-hmm. one loses all of it, including mm-hmm. notions of rights, for example, mm-hmm. which undoubtedly have been associated with the liberal tradition. Should we take another one? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, Claire. Uh, Claire Hemmings, uh, Gender Institute. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I, I, had, a, I had a question, I think, that, that is partly about different um, disciplinary kind of sites and shifts and partly about different um, geographies and, and spaces. Uh, and and it slightly relates to Anne's question, which is, that you know, in, in, in lots of in lots of contexts and uh, sex and gender and I would say liberalism um, ha- get recentered as the heart or the mainstream of, of a particular kind of problem in in, in feminism. Um, and part of me wonders about the kind of um, need for for something conservative to be at the centre. Mm. You know, sort of repeatedly in a sense, irrespective of how often, how long, and for how many decades, something like a post-colonial critique has actually been you know, undoing those, those concerns. And when, in a sense, we can continue to talk about uh, sex gender as at the mainstream of feminism generally, I mean, we may be able to talk about it at the mainstream of particular formations of institutionalization or, or of, mm-hmm. of legal context. But my sense is, you know, that, that, that I see that a lot in lots of different places and not sure. just in, and, and, you know, not just in terms of the context that you're very specifically delineating. And I, I'm, I'm starting to find that incredibly problematic, I think. Because in a sense, I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that sex and gender are at the center of, of, of feminism in general anymore. In fact, certainly a publishing industry globally would suggest mm-hmm. quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, that, that, there seems to be a need for us to place that there in order to have some kind of objective critique that marks particular kinds of criticism as continually marginal. So I wonder if part of that is, you know, that... So I have that worry. And then I think that maybe then, does that recenter the legal frame mm-hmm. in a sense? Because in that way there, it clearly is still central, and that would be true in the UK as well, that, that a kind of version of, of, of gender and sex is certainly central to, to those kinds of frames. But, but can we really have it both ways then? I mean, can we, <laughs> can we want those critiques to be taken seriously but still want the primary object of critique to remain the law, which it seems to me will always, in some senses, take a conservative... Uh, genre of, of gender politics because it has a very specific kind of task. It's not really quite, I don't know, is that a question? I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 I'll engage with it. That's it. Yeah, that's terrific. Great. Um, let me just um, engage with both of these. Uh, and I mean, one is, you know, when I'm talking about liberalism, I'm always aware, I'm not trying to set up a sort of a straw man here. I think that's deeply problematic, that you need to be very specific. And in a talk like this, it becomes those nuances do um, get erased. And I would say that I am talking about liberalism and the con- its relationship with empire coming uh, with it and how it operated in the context of the, the subcontinent. That's, ex- that's precisely where I'm locating it, not generally as a global phenomenon. I, I do believe it had, takes on different uh, incarnations or, or formations in different places. So I would definitely be looking at it there. And secondly, I am also quite specifically looking at law in the context of 
the post-colonial nation-state. And one of the things I've sort of talked and written about is that law never gets introduced into the, the subcontinent as a liberating tool. It's always used as a way of subjugating or excluding. Uh, and that's where the axis of inclusion and exclusion get revealed so clearly. So nobody takes it so seriously, you know, as a tool of emancipation and freedom. It becomes very hard, given that history, in the context of, uh, of the subcontinent, to ever imagine that law can actually provide that, given that its history has proved otherwise, you know, provide that kind of freedom. So I think the fear of this, of losing this, um, I sometimes detect that that fear is much stronger over, say, in this part of the world than it might be that part of the world, which is why I think there's a possibility of talking about other spaces of freedom and emancipation, or other ways in which to conceive of freedom and emancipation. so I really would like to sort of say that I, I, would, I, I want to ground liberalism. I don't want to just use it randomly as, as something that I can constantly attack, um, regardless of what it looks like. It does have very specific features. And in fact, what may be described as liberalism, because it's so intertwined with empire, may have absolutely no, um, may be unrecognizable in this context, right? It may not even appear then as something that was Liberalism, as maybe you might understand it, or other political philosophers might understand it. So, okay. <laughs> so I hope that that's sort of partly helpful there. And um, Claire, um, I, I think that again, I, and, and I want to say that that's why in the very beginning of the talk, I was trying to sort of locate this discussion about sex and gender in the women's study centers in India and women's rights advocacy in India. I really do believe that you can't just embrace all, again, just a bit like liberalism, say all feminist scholarship uses, puts sex and gender at its heart. It just doesn't. We do know that with the proliferation of scholarship that there is. But I'm talking about a specific, um, very influential, I think, um, scholarship within the context of, of India and how sometimes I feel it's become a bit dehistoricized um, and secondly, of course, women's rights advocacy, the one that is centered or foregrounded most is uh, the contemporary uh, engagements with law reform and, and uh, issues of violence against women. That's really what is centered, even though I do believe there's all sorts of advocacy that's going on all over the place, um, not only in terms of rights, but looking at, at freedom very differently or empowerment very differently. I do believe that. My misfortune is that I do law, you know, and I therefore have to actually constantly focus on law. That's what I'm constantly trying to do on how um, I think, and I, and I sort of alluded to it a little bit in, our, in, in the talk and the presentation is that um, while I don't think necessarily uh, the notion of law as, as equated with freedom and emancipation is as deeply embedded in, in India as it might be over here, um, I, I'm now concerned that it's the market that now has become uh, the place for emancipation for women. You know, um, everybody's attributing a lot of, you know, more public um, uh, participation of women, uh, women in the public arena, in media, in uh, in um, in some of these uh, uh, more public spaces to the market, and the market is providing freedom. So I'm, you know, I haven't actually done that kind of analysis, but that's what I'm seeing at this point of time. So here, when we talk about, again, in terms of engagements with law, I think the engagements with law, some have been more complicated than others. 
they're not necessarily in the area of women's rights where we've seen that complexity. We may have seen that complexity, especially with uh, religious minority groups and how they've engaged with law, because they bring gender, religion, and multiple identities to law and do complicate that space much more. And I think that's something to actually be, be looked at. I'm not sure that feminist engagements with law have been really that sophisticated at all. And it's not that law has only a conservative impulse, because law does obviously, if you do see it as a site of power, it can be challenged in terms of how it constructs certain subjects. And it can, you know, at least produce narratives which are more complex, even if the outcome ultimately may just be one that's very simplistic or very linear, you know, or one-dimensional. Hi, Sadie Waring, Gender Institute. Um, thank you. Um, I wanted to pick up on. I wanted to pick up on your uh, your opening <laughs> and on your and your uh, recourse to yeah. um, to. And I've forgotten her name. Jamili. Yeah, to her. <laughs> to this subject. And I just wanted you to to gloss a little bit um, your reading of this subject because I'm, I'm really interested in you know, the ways in which this subject too might also be seen as a subject of power, as a, as a discursive subject in a range of ways as produced out of you know, I, I know you've already alluded to the market um, and neoliberalism and so on and I'm also thinking about the ways in which this is also uh, a subject that can also be thought of in terms of inclusion and exclusion mm-hmm. and questions of embodiment and the particular ways in which so I just wanted your gloss really on on how you on how you on what this figure is doing for you because I kind of I'm kind of getting a certain amount of you know utopian energy coming out of, of that figure and I just wanted to hear a bit more about well, um, I mean, Chameli for me is, is one. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of—it's a sort of pleasure, a private pleasure, which I want to share publicly because I just, just do really think this song sequence is very beautifully choreographed, and it concerns a sexual subaltern. And if you watch the film, what's very interesting about it is that it's uh, this good liberal man who comes, and they're both stuck through a series of circumstances in the rain under this, this sort of archway, which is the underbelly of, of Mumbai. Um, and they just have a conversation throughout the entire night. You know, it's not a sort of sexual relationship here at all. It's just a conversation. And it's all about she being almost constantly challenging his good liberal credentials. You know, he wants to help her because he thinks he's a victim, but she's constantly seems to be able to, to challenge his is, is sort of good intentions, you know, as actually based on rather problematic assumptions about her. Right? And so I, I find that it's a, it's a wonderful way to begin a conversation on the subaltern subject, especially the sexual subaltern subject. And I do like using it in, in places like here. I guess I was sort of, I think we were all sort of um, coming from India, um, uh, a bit tired of the sort of... Um, the jubilation over Slumdog Millionaire everywhere else in the world, and so it was. Um, 
it's sort of my response to this, you know, the way of trying to set the stage a bit differently, uh, that the subaltern, sexual subaltern subject is a very complex subject. And I feel that not only does celluloid over there bring out some of those complexities and layerings, which may be lost in, in say, representations that are equivalent to Slumdog. And I, I think of other films like Born into Brothels, which also won the Oscar for a documentary two years ago, or the other one everybody went crazy about, um, which was deep, another deep Meta film, Water. You know, the girl who's uh, a child bride, uh, widow, child widow, whatever. You know, and those really make me cringe because these are um, celluloid uh, representations which are so based on uh, really quite embedded assumptions about the third world and the third world subject and the third world subaltern subject. I, and I, I think Jamili helps to really challenge some of that. I use her to challenge that, not only at the level of celluloid, but also at the level of uh, my discussions about the subject, the subaltern subject, and the sort of normative challenges that she poses, um, not only in her conversation with this man, but also in terms of assumptions that may be embedded in the thinking of those who are watching and listening to talks like this. Uh, so that would be my, my reason for it. And also, I think it's just a lot of fun to start something like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hi, um, uh, I'm Sean. Um, thank you for the talk. It's been really interesting. And um, it's sort of spoken to a lot of things that I've been thinking about lately. And I'm sorry if this is a bit inarticulate because I've got lots of things sloshing around in my head at the moment I haven't really sorted out. But I was very interested in what you were saying to begin with about how um, Indian feminism had, um, in a sense, deliberately distanced itself from Western feminism in order not to seem irrelevant. And I was interested in that in terms of how um, one of the problems of feminism has always been our, well, women's dispersal, you know, um, among families with education, um, class, you know, race, um, physical boundaries of, of nationhood. Um, and I was just thinking about how um, that sort of has, has changed to a certain extent. I mean, time has gone by, and I wonder if we're now at a point where, um, you know, women can sort of speak across these boundaries. Um, I mean, it's also one of, the, one of the problems that we deal with now in, in terms of having to talk across these spaces that are all our disagreements within feminism are public. So our sort of our questioning of what we believe as feminists is is somehow held up by, by those who disagree with it as, you know, these women they don't know what they're talking about, they don't know what they believe. You know, we're talking across these spaces, it's public, so it's in a sense um, you know, that, that, that we are arguing with one another, but that that's in a sense our strength because we are discussing what we believe and we are questioning what we believe all the time. And, you know, now we have this opportunity to, to speak to different countries, to different cultures, to different religions, that we can sort of draw on each other's strengths and, and, and make it, you know, make feminism new again. Um, and I was thinking about sort of two cases of activism lately. One, well, it's happened today, actually, it's in this afternoon's papers, the, um, the, the university um, beauty contest that um, has been, well, there's been, there's been protests about it lately, there's been protests about it today, I think, that the, um, 
that the, the feminists have been going to, to protest about it, and yet the, you know, the, the, the papers are getting quotes from the women who have been in this contest saying, well, this is about choice, this is a central tenet of feminism. Um, and so in this sense, this is our public debate. Can I debate. urge you to just... Um, yes, yeah, sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm getting to my point. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there was um, recently in the papers a, um, a, a, a case of activism, um, it was it Pink, Pink Chuddies, I think mm-hmm. it was, and um, how that became sort of a, a worldwide thing where you know, women sort of raced to the cause and to, to support women in South Asia. And I just, I, I just sort of, these were the things that have been, I've been thinking about and whether you thought that we're now in a position where we can sort of club together and perhaps cross those boundaries. Thank you. So. Would, you would you like to respond? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that you, you know, dissent is always uh, present. Uh, within both the Indian women's movement, but I, as I, I sort of alluded to this in the talk, also from other quarters such as the gay and lesbian movement and the, and the sex workers movement who feel that feminists have still really very complicated relationship with the nation and the way in which the Indian, uh, Indian womanhood is deeply embedded in the identity of the nation, defines the identity of the nation. So it's a very, very difficult relationship at times. Um, whereas sex workers and gays and lesbians, I think, have been provoked then to come out into the public space to challenge not only feminist thinking, but also the thinking within the right. They've often been collapsed together, quite honestly, around, you know, how um, they also are part of the so-called Indian cultural tradition. You always have to make the cultural argument. You cannot not make this argument. You cannot just say, I uh, believe in, you know, uh, rights to sexual autonomy and bodily integrity. It just won't work because then that does align you with the foreigner and the outsider. Uh, so the cultural argument needs to, is simultaneously complicated as well by these various groups coming out. And I think and that's a very healthy sign, but I'm not sure it's really coming from within feminism. I think feminism, uh, there, there are many different layers of feminism in India. There's no question about that. But I would say the ones who are speaking most or ch- most challenging at this point of time when it comes to um, the construction of both sexuality and, and, and gender would be some of the sexual subalterns. I really do believe that's where some of the radical uh, politics lies. And, of course, even with Pink Chuddies, I mean, I think that's amazing that it's come, you know, it's sort of gone across the globe here. Wonderful. But if you look at the website, you'll also see the kind of violence that that has actually provoked against women generally, you know. Um, so, on one, at one hand, it's a wonderful response, but on the other hand, there is still this intransigence uh, uh, and uh, a sense that this kind of campaign can only be from either a contaminated, deviant lot of people or from foreigners and outsiders. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, uh, Professor Kabul, for um, answering our questions and engaging with them so eloquently and so patiently. Um, and I, at this point, I'd like to uh, invite Professor Mark Treacher to, uh, to present the Feminist Review. I'm not to take up too much of your time. You're actually, uh, I mean, I'm so am I. So I'm going to be as brief as I can. 
but I just we wanted to take the opportunity to tell you that this is completely hot off the press and it is a special issue of Feminist Review which does focus on South Asian women and uh, to pick up what you were talking about what our work for the title throughout was about negotiating new terrains and But in a capitulation to the market, actually to the publisher, we kind of gave in and did agree to being called South Asian Feminisms. Quite critically, it's actually edited from the region, so it's not edited by the feminist in London. And it does actually cover a range of articles from Bangladesh. a range of, as it, you know, our contemporary issues, from issues of sexuality, focusing on same-sex marriages, to issues of the difficulties that the women there have faced in terms of keeping peace movements going, especially my favourite article of peace, which is who's just sitting there, and I'm really sorry to do this to you, <laughs> but actually is about women's kind of complicitness actually in kind of issues of violence. So that there are two different approaches, which is from kind of resistance and struggle in keeping it going to actually, you know, in terms of our, yeah, I mean, kind of situations. There's also articles in there Inevitably, whether we like it or not, there is a long piece in there of So that's the, the range of theoretical things. Once I've actually shot through the issue, is I think poignant uh, poems and short stories. So that's you know, about, to, it's so hot off the press, I haven't even. However, there are a number of copies on sale if you want to grab one in the I just want to actually just talk about two different resources from Women's Review, one of which is there's now a complete online article. And it wasn't until I was sitting here, actually, that I so that's a completely historical resource of all the articles that have been published and you can access it either through the university library or through personal and the other resource I just want to mention is the Feminist Review Trust and if you go on the for money for any projects or you know, from putting on plays to actually theoretical Work and we give out uh, not a lot of money, but it's a resource. It's, we give out about 20,000 a year, and it's not it's nothing and it's something. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. Um.
So, um, alas, this is, we have come to the end of the evening. So, um, so all that's left for me to do is to thank Professor Kapoor again, to thank Professor uh, Treacher, and thank you for attending. Uh, I'd also like to invite you to a reception at the Senior Common Room, which is at the, uh, on the fifth floor of the old building, LSE old building. Um, so you're all welcome, and to continue your conversations there. Okay.